Hello, and welcome to the second chapter. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy, and I'm here to remind you that it's never too late to start your next chapter and to share stories of interesting and insightful women who may just inspire you in your current chapter. This week, I'm speaking with Kelly Denham. Kelly is a stand-up comic, a registered nurse, an author, a storyteller, and, wait for it, an ex-nun. Kelly's website says, quote, I don't know how all of this came together on a resume, unquote, but I've done my best to find out, though there is so much beyond what we got to speak about. Having lost two partners between the ages of 38 and 43, Kelly is an expert on the intersections of art, grief, and community-based caregiving, and presents across the U.S. to healthcare providers about LGBT issues, LGBT health, and gender and health using humor and the transformative power of first-person storytelling. That's the gift of comedy. Like, that is, everyone laughs about the hard things after a while. Things do get funny, even terribly tragic things. You can remember something funny about it. It's not that it's not tragic. We're human, and funny things happen in terrible things. And it doesn't work for everything. I always say, when I do presentations about humor, I always have somebody turn to somebody next to them and say, it's okay to laugh at the funny parts, but then we also say, it's okay to cry at the sad parts, too. Hi, Kelly. How are you? I am fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the second chapter. It's lovely to see slash hear you. Thank you. It's lovely to be seen slash heard. (laughs) It is very early your time. Thank you for joining me from Brooklyn when it's 7 a.m. your time. I actually love an early morning interview. It's much more of a challenge for me if somebody wants to interview me. Like I have another interview today at 5.30. So right when I get home from school slash work. So I'm, it just is like, I'm like, don't, just don't ask me any questions. Although <laughs> I have to say, usually interviewers do ask questions very unlike teenagers. I've never had an interviewer ask me anything about anime, which is, I feel like a very typical com- conversation I end up having with teenagers. Now I feel like I need to inject an anime question into every interview I do just to shake things up. (laughs) It will shake things up. Yeah. That Kristen from the second chapter, she's always asking about anime. Nobody really quite gets why. but (laughs) I guess it would be a good way of seeing if somebody was like slightly full of shit, because if they make up an answer to the anime question, they might be making up answers to other questions. Or maybe they're anime fans. One of the two. You can't. And there's no way to actually know. Yeah, true. My partner is a bit of an anime fan. And I have to say my connection has always been, I used to have a lot shorter hair than I have now. And it was always like, I look like an anime boy because I have exaggeratedly large eyes (laughs) with the short (laughs) hair. It was never like the buxom women, but always the really crazy big eyed boy. (laughs) I'd be glad you don't work in a high school then. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because I always say, I make my wardrobe changes very differently than when I didn't work in a school because I always said the kids will not remember your name and they will describe you and do you want to be described as the white lady whose shoes are always dirty is that how you actually <laughs> want to be described so I, I really I've yeah I think more carefully about about my appearance now Fair enough. (laughs) Speaking of descriptions, your website says stand-up comic, RN, author, storyteller, ex-nun. I've interviewed quite a few people that have had maybe the first few. Ex-nun's not one of them. And I'm wondering partially if that has to do with your early morning, your early morning vigor as well. Yeah, absolutely. When I was a nun, we got up at 4.40 every morning. And before the fifth bell rang, we were supposed to be on the floor praying. Yeah. So it, it definitely, I feel like the, I also grew up on a farm. So that's, the, it kind of dovetails smoothly into being very excited to be up early and falling asleep in front of 
whatever I'm working on. Like last night, I fell asleep texting at 8.30 p.m. Like a child. I'm very envious of anybody who can fall asleep at 8.30, though, because people are like, oh, you hear people say, I'm getting old. I fall asleep early, whatever. No, I am such a night owl and have always been. And it's just trying to go to bed at a decent midnight or something. I'm just like, please fall asleep. Please fall asleep. (laughs) And I feel like there's so much moralizing about the idea that getting up early is somehow the more instead of staying up late and working, that getting up early is somehow the more moral option or the more responsible option. But people are just wired differently. I tell the kids at school all that set an alarm to go to bed. You don't need an alarm to get up, but you need an alarm to go to bed. Actually, I'm going to take that advice. It's very clever. (laughs) So you mentioned growing up on a farm. You grew up in Wisconsin, which I'm quite familiar with as someone who grew up in Ohio and worked for Oshkosh Bagosh for a while. Oh, wow. (laughs) Based in Wisconsin. I was in New York, in their New York office, but that meant several Wisconsin trips to me, for me. Tell me a bit about growing up in Wisconsin and how it led to you becoming a nun, because the nun is obviously very intriguing for me. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny because I did not actually grow up in a Catholic home. I didn't go to Catholic school. I actually grew up, my mom was a, like a born again person, like an evangelical person, which evangelical people often, maybe not all, but often don't even believe that Catholics are Christians, but they believe they worship Mary and statues and stuff. So, cause it, so it's interesting that kind of led to what was the through line was not the religion, but the psychology of it. Cause, you know, I'm from this very stoic Germanic farm family and it's a bit of an exaggeration, I guess, or hyperbole to say that you get your thumb ripped off by the thresher and you'd come yelling, mom, my, the thresher cut off my thumb and it's out there in the yard. And she'd say, you march off there and you pick up that thumb. We don't deal, you don't leave things laying around like that. And that's hyperbolic, <laughs> but I think it, I wouldn't want to test it in real life. Any complaint to my dad was met with, most people are just about as happy as they make up their minds they're going to be, which is a quote he attributed to either Link, Winston Churchill, Dale Carnegie, or sometimes Abraham Lincoln. So that was, that gives you a picture, right? Of this stoic Germanic childhood that didn't have a lot of room for children's complaints. And I can't say I'm not grateful for some of that. There are times where I'm like, oh, powering through, what a useful skill. But being in touch with your own feelings, that kind of thing. So the missionaries of charity, when I met them, I was actually working in Haiti as a, I flunked out of Bible college uh, for obvious looking like a queer reasons. And I was just like, okay, what's next now? I don't really know what's next. And so a friend said, oh, I have a friend of a friend who is working at a school for kids with disabilities in Haiti, and they need somebody really badly to run recreation and you don't have to have any special skills. And I was like, oh my God, that's me. I don't have any special skills. I don't have any special skills. Okay, well, I'm perfect. <laughs> I'm uniquely qualified for this job. So I went and was teaching the toughest kids in Haiti, kids with disabilities. And this was in the late 80s, often like accidents and that kind of thing, who had survived. So they're very tough kids. And this was a school really for kids with orthopedic disabilities, which certainly could have been educated somewhere else, but it was like gave them a unique chance to get a really good education that came in from the provinces. Yeah. I remember those early days. I heard this like flop and I was like, what is that? And I went around the corner in the dorm and there were two boys hopping on the remaining leg that they had and hitting each other with the prosthetics they had taken off. So just like whap. And these were not like prosthetics meant for running marathons or like climbing mountains. These were like very appropriate aesthetic prosthetics for their situation, right? Like very, like they were made of wood and they were heavy and extremely durable. I was like, they're like hitting each other essentially with a baseball bat. Um, this is very tough kids. Anyway, that, this was in the, 
the early years after, right after the Devaliers were kicked out a couple of years. And so there was like one coup after another and essentially just a low grade civil war and a bomb went off very close to the school. And so the nun, not my kind of nun, but another an Episcopal nun who ran the school, sent the kids back to the provinces temporarily where they could ostensibly be safer. And so I was like, oh, what am I doing now? Now I live in Haiti, but there's no kids to run recreation with and I don't have any special skills. And then a dentist who was coming through to do some dental work said, hey, you want to go to the home for the dying? And I was like, sure. And I was enough of an adolescent to turn the question into a challenge and say yes for the sake of pride. So we walked into, it wasn't very far away, maybe 10 minutes we got there. And I was like, uh, this place is run by nuns. You didn't tell me it was run by nuns. And then there was a sister, it's a missionary of charity. So it's Mother Teresa's nuns. This nun, she was young and maybe five, two, maybe. And she was carrying a 60 pound bang of concrete on one shoulder. And so she slid it down her body and back up her other shoulder so she could take my hand. And she said, oh, Jesus must have known we needed extra help today. And he sent you. Which you can understand how a little baby queer closeted, even to myself, who's looking for a life that made sense. You can understand why that was intoxicating. And it wasn't just, it wasn't just one sister. It was all of them and the way they work together and their sisters from around the world. And there's a lot of people not from Haiti. The colonization game is still strong there. And the MCs, they lived more simply. So it wasn't like they were living in a big fancy house. And they really worked side by side with Haitian folks and with the people who use their services, right? Mm -hmm. So it was just a completely different situation. I wouldn't say it was exactly equitable, but it was much different than kind of the the missionary game that I was seeing. So that was very, I was looking for a way of life that made sense. And also living in community was so, that was really intriguing to me. So they're also like very tough nuns. They were not Stoic Germanic nuns, but they were essentially the religious equivalent of my Midwestern upbringing. Right. Um, so I think that's impressive in some ways that, you know, I would say like convent felt like home to me, but it's like, hmm, you might want to think twice about making a major life decision. If you haven't had much therapy and you're from a stoic, dramatic, alcoholic home, think twice about making a major life decision because it feels like home. That is a good point. <laughs> well, this feels like the home that wasn't necessarily that great. I probably should become involved right away. Exactly. Exactly. But it's what we're comfortable with. And it was all told between volunteering and being a nun. I gave them about seven years of my life, of my 20s, which I feel 100% that was what I needed to do. I used to feel like a little embarrassed about that, but I don't know. I felt, okay, so I really wanted to do something that mattered. Okay. Wasn't maybe the right choice, but I'd still be wondering if I should, if I would still be thinking like, should I at least have tried the Missionaries of Charity? Maybe that's what the universe or God or someone wanted me to do. So I'm glad I tried, but it was disastrous. One of the things was, is that I knew about their work, but I didn't really know they are serious, like pre-Vatican II-esque nuns in in the convent. They have like very strict ideas of obedience and the pre-aspirancy is supposed to be a month. And it took me a year and a half, which is like failing preschool 18 times. And I got held back because I had too much self-esteem, which I feel like is a termination notice you're only going to get from the convent, and insufficient docility, which I didn't even know docility was a good thing, except for maybe an American dairy cow. In fact, when Mother Teresa came to, finally, I got to the point where I was going to be an aspirant, and she came to the Bronx, where our house was, to give us our habits. 
And she just said, oh, sister, what's your name? And then I told her and she said, oh, I've heard of you. And I was like, oh, this is kind of embarrassing. What could I say to Mother Teresa? I've heard of you too. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's what a coincidence. What a coincidence. I, I've heard of you, but not maybe for the same reasons. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. It's funny. I'm in a day job situation, which by the time people listen to this, I will be done in this day job situation. But my boss, I was having a hard time with somebody else in authority who is just has a very different idea of me than I feel like anyone I've ever met and uh, says, I'm not a very good collaborator and I don't work as a team. And come on, I'm a nun, you know, like second to joining a cult. I feel like that is what the definition of a team player. And uh, my immediate boss said, Kelly, is it worse than disappointing Mother Teresa? And I was like, okay, it is not worse than disappointing Mother Teresa. As the people who know your history can use it on you. (laughs) I think it's such an interesting history, though, because like I said, I mean, I've talked to a lot of stand-up comics. I've talked to a lot of nurses or nurses who have become stand-up comics, but not a lot of nuns and especially not ones that were failed several times because of (laughs) self-esteem. I'm kind of intrigued with what happened next, because I feel like the balance of this stoic upbringing, this wanting to be a nun, but also having self-esteem, because that's something that I feel like in a way, I don't want to say gets beat out of you. It is something that isn't necessarily always appreciated in that kind of an upbringing. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is, I can't say what it is, but there was always something like when I was I'm the youngest of either five or seven, depending on how you count them. And, you know, my mom had her tubes tied two years before she had me (laughs) because they were just clamping fallopian tubes. Now they sever them, which is more successful. One out of 99 babies born between 1968 and 1972 were born to a woman who'd had her tubes tied. Isn't that amazing? I did not know that, but that is a very interesting statistic. I mean, and there is something, I didn't learn that actually till I was an adult, but when my brother accidentally told me because he just assumed that I knew, I was like, oh, that explains a lot. And made me have like a little more, have a lot of respect for my parents. I wouldn't say they were great at being parents, but they were, they wanted to be decent humans. You know, they just didn't have any emotional resources and zero emotional resources by the time I came along. But I was like, oh, that does solve the mystery of what were, why were they having one more kid? And also it made me feel like I'm sure that my mom did not tell me and in fact has always denied it, even though there is actual documentation that this is the case because she thought it would hurt my feelings, but it didn't actually hurt my feelings. It just explained a lot and also just made me feel like super queer. I'm like the little egg that's fighting its way through the banded fallopian tube. I didn't. <laughs> And I always do have this kind of deep biological optimism, which that's what a therapist called it one time. And it does not seem to be something I have control over it. Like almost everything for me is a good memory. Like it's actually a problem. I had a friend who I used to, after I would have a bad gig, I would be like, okay, can you please remind me next time I'm going to perform at this gay resort in the Poconos where you go on 11 PM and nobody's driving home and everyone is falling down drunk. Could you please remind me I had a bad time? And she's like, yes, I'll remind you. Because <laughs> all I remember is, oh, I made that new joke and that really worked really well. And then I talked to this woman afterwards. I don't actually remember the bad thing. So it's great for mental health. It's super for mental health, just terrible for decision making. So I think that is part of how it, my self-esteem just, I mean, it maybe wasn't great, but it was too good for the missionaries of charity. You, you specifically said that you were closeted at that point, even to yourself. So after leaving the MCs, well, kind of what inspired the leaving and how did you finally come out to yourself and then obviously the world? So sometimes our bodies are unruly 
And sometimes our bodies tell us things that we can't admit to our on a conscious level. I started having my period every day for an entire summer. And we showered, like we just poured water over ourselves from a bucket. Like we didn't have, and you could only do that once a day. And not that menstruating is inherently dirty. You just, there, there's a lot of blood involved. And we used non, and this was in 1990 something. So this was before people were using non-disposable menstrual. There's a great history of people using non-disposable menstrual products, but that was before a lot of people I knew were using non-disposable cups and things like that. So we just had diapers like literal diapers, cloth diapers, we would fold up and put in our underwear. And then we had to wash it out by hand. And that was, that was like a full-time job at that point. And um, so we were cleaning the women's shelter, which is something we did every morning. And as I was dusting the dresser, there was a tampon sitting there. And I took it and I was like, oh, hang on, I'm going to borrow this and put it in my pocket. And then I started to walk away and I was like, Kelly, you're not borrowing this. Are you going to give it back? Of course not. And that was like the moment. There was a few other things, but that was the moment where I was like, I don't know who I am maybe in this scenario, but I know who I don't want to be. And that's a person who steals a tampon from a homeless woman. You know, right. like that was the moment where I was like, this is, I thought maybe it was unhealthy, but then I was like, no, this is actually making me into a worse person or creating an atmosphere where it's harder for me to be decent. Yeah. So that was, and then I said to them, they were, they were in some ways, they're very patient with me. I know like my aspirant mistress one time she loaned me her prayer book for something and I was on the top of, she had a little piece of paper like, dear God, please give me patience with Sister Mercy. Like, I, I think I worked her last nerve. So when I said, hey, do you guys think I should leave? They're like, yes, please. Mm. Yes. <laughs> They're like, let us think about that. Yes. And it's hilarious because there's a podcast called The Turning, which is all about sisters who have left. And I, in the process of recording it, not Last summer was when it came out, and then the, we'd been recorded all the previous year. So I had a lot more contact with former mission and security than I'd ever had. And every single one of them is, yeah, when you go to leave, they just beg you, and they like follow, try and follow you home. And I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, that's what happens every time. <laughs> there was not a single sister that we that they the podcast makers talked to in the process of it that I heard anyone saying, oh yeah, they're just like, bye. I was like, wow, I don't know. And then I was actually mentioning that to Mary Johnson, who's one of the executive producers and was also an MC for 20 years. And she goes, maybe that's a compliment to you, Kelly. Maybe that's actually like such a nod to your character and that they just knew that you were never going to be squashed. So I decided that's how I felt about it. <laughs> yeah, I like that. It's much better. And you moved back, let's see, I'm like, Wisconsin, Florida, Haiti, Philly. Yeah, I always say, I didn't know, you know, we were just standing at Port Authority at the bus terminal, and my sister, my aspirant mistress, I can never think of, am I using her real name? She doesn't listen to podcasts, like they don't even have computers or iPhones. But anyway, she was tapping her foot on the floor, just saying, where do you want to go? And I was like, I guess, Billy, my sister lived there. Although she had a six week old baby. I don't know why I thought like I would be able to stay with her comfortably for a long time. Although she did generously let me come there without even asking her husband. And I knew I needed to probably go back to school and Philly seemed like a decent place to go. And I at least had some place to land. So I actually, I stayed with my sister for a little bit and then actually a volunteer, a former volunteer with the missionaries of charity that I knew from before had a house outside of Philadelphia. And she let me stay there for six or seven weeks, which I really appreciated so that I could apply for a job and all that. So staying at that friend's house, it was, you took the real, like the kind of regional train, the 
city-based suburb train. And then there was still like a two-mile walk. And so I was doing that two-mile walk after I had started at my job. And I was as I was walking down Route 105, I was like, oh, I'm gay. Oh, 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 that explains so much. Oh, because it had been so long fighting against that on a subconscious level, when it finally came to my conscious, I was like, oh, and it was even though there was a little bit of that struggle of, oh, you know, does God hate me? That kind of thing. I was my everyone I met in Philadelphia who was not from my former life. I met through the Catholic Worker, which is a like a leftist radical Catholic movement of service and activism. And one of the women there ran, is queer, and runs a free clinic. And I was volunteering at the free clinic. And she was like, Kelly, you know, and then she mentioned a mutual friend. That person is so clearly struggling with sexuality. And what I see in her is she's not able to love people the way she would really like to love people because she's so busy suppressing a part of herself. And for me, that was the moment where I was like, okay, yeah, this is obviously who I am. And gender is like slightly more complicated. Like I've always been what we call the tomboy. Like I've always had a masculine identity. It's almost like a completely different conversation in some ways than sexual orientation in terms of what that was like as a child and that kind of thing. I think a lot of my upbringing, my parents were okay with me looking like a boy, but they expected me to have the toughness of a boy too. Anyway, that's a way more complicated conversation, I suppose. But that was always, I've always looked exactly like I was just walking through the school the other day. And one of the teachers who has worked with me for three years saw me out of the side of her eye and she thought, she said, oh, I thought you were ex and it's a ninth grader boy. <laughs> I mean, with I've had, I've been a lot of different weights. So my face has a lot of loose skin on it. So I'm starting to show my age a little bit more. I look like, have looked like a 12 year old boy for a long time. So that's a little bit different, but the sexual orientation piece like that was the coming to it. Yeah. It's interesting that something like that, such a, like that you could just be walking down the road after a lifetime and go, it all makes sense. <laughs> yeah. This is the only thing that makes sense. Yeah. And I feel like you really embraced, like it's part of your comedy. It's part, obviously it's who you are, but I don't feel like it's necessarily the easiest thing sometimes. For example, I know you have a story that has made its way into your comedy that's, or maybe I shouldn't even say comedy because it's just an interesting story that is painfully funny about when you came out to your mom. Yeah, where she ripped up my birth certificate and sent it to me. Yeah. Is that the story we're talking yeah. about? Yeah. 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 So I was lovely. <laughs> yeah. I told, because my mom thought she was so unique and clever. But when I took the pieces to the county clerk's office, she, he was like, Oh, we get a lot of that from people who look like you. And I was like, All right. So everybody's mother is melodramatic. And I just recently started thinking about how gay that an act that is. Tearing up a birth certificate on stage is like something a drag queen would do. She didn't do it on stage. A drag queen. Would do I was that. like, that's fabulous that she did it on stage. <laughs> it was amazing because it just, she needed that kind of super dramatic act. We had a hard decade. <laughs> and then I was the kid she wanted with her when she was dying. We definitely came around. We came around to each other, but beginning was not easy for her. I'm saying it's a painfully funny story. It's heartbreaking when you say that you took the pieces and that they said that they got it a lot from quote unquote people that look like you. We can laugh at it and because you did repair your relationship, but it's so heartbreaking to think that so many people would go through something so melodramatic, but also so painful from probably parents that oftentimes they think have unconditional love. Unconditional love. Yeah. And this was a while ago, so hopefully it's happening less. I was very lucky in that I was completely financially, I was in my 
mid to late 20s when I came out to my mom. I was late 20s. I was completely financially dependent of her. And emotionally, like she wasn't really, nurturing wasn't really her thing anyway. She's a fantastic cook, but nurturing was not her thing, or at least not soft nurturing. And so I wasn't dependent on her. Like for, I actually really feel for kids who realize it's a beautiful thing that kids are realizing so early their sexual orientation and their gender identity, but it also puts them in such a vulnerable position, especially kids in Tennessee where they, if they, if school feels like a safe place to them, school can tell their parents. It's just really, it's really scary. So I, there are some things about coming out at 28 that are an advantage and having your own job is one of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And speaking of kind of work things, this is about the same time that you were becoming an RN. Is that true? Yeah. So one of the reasons I was thinking Philadelphia is Philadelphia had a lot of good nursing schools, a lot of good schools in general, but nursing schools. And so, yeah, I always say, oh, I came out, I got a therapist, I joined a softball league and went to nursing school. So, <laughs> what a quadrifecta, whatever that is. <laughs> and I was so lucky because I had not finished Bible college. I was able to get like grants because I didn't have a bachelor's degree or any degree. I was able to get grants and I got actually a, a full scholarship too, which I never would have been able. It would have just taken me a hundred years to get through nursing school without it. So I feel really grateful for that. Yeah. So I went to nursing school and I will say that is the best decision I made for myself. Like even now, like I'm leaving this job, which is not primarily a nursing job, although being a nurse helps a lot. And going back into, I have at times been a full-time performer, although I almost always have some kind of RN job, but anyway, I'm almost going to be 55 years old. And I have to say that I'm very grateful to Kelly of 25 years ago who went to nursing school because I have so many more options than I would as a 55-year-old queer-looking person in the workplace. Yeah. So I'm really so grateful for that. And nursing has just been fantastic to me. And I do a lot of speaking to nursing conferences. And if you want a very earnest uh, nurse comedian who's going to do a presentation about laughter at the end of life or using humor to mitigate impacts of trauma, which is not every... That's not every comedian's dream job, but that's mine. So I feel so grateful to, I feel yeah, just in the way that I'm queer, I'm a non-binary person, I'm a nurse. It's like that kind of central to my identity. I think you touched on what I would want to talk about next, which is how you started bringing end of life and trauma, or I'm assuming this is where it all stemmed from, but you had in somewhat rapid succession, two partners, two people who you were very much in love with die. Yeah. So I started out as every comic does. Ah, take my, take my softball glove, please. Just kind of joking. And there was a couple of things. One is that I didn't realize as quickly as I should have, but after being chased in the parking lot of a comedy club in Northeast Philadelphia, ch chased by another performer with a broken bottle, uh, I realized that I should probably just keep performing in the queer community. And that was fantastic. That was fantastic for so many. At one time, I made 30% of my yearly income from Pride events. June was very busy. It was, I don't want to say simpler comedy, but lighter comedy. And that is where I started. And then in 2007, my partner, Heather, died. And I thought, oh, I'm never going to love anyone again. And then I never loved anyone like her, but I fell in love with somebody who's very different a few years later. And she also, within 18 months of us starting dating, developed 
Hodgkin's lymphoma and died not from the cancer, but from the chemotherapy that was supposed to cure the cancer. Hodgkin's, 85% of people who have Hodgkin's are completely cured, never even have a recurrence with that kind of chemo. But 2% of people who get that particular chemotherapeutic drug die from it. Even if we were playing the odds, we'd have to do that again. Yeah. So I was, in some ways, was just so devastated that performing about it seemed like the only answer. Mm-hmm. And then as I got further along, I really wanted to perform so that other people who had lost people, which is everyone, right, could have like safe places to talk about grief. So it became, I don't know who originally said this. It is not original to me, but comedy can either be about making heavy of light things like Jerry Seinfeld, oh, hotel soap, or making light of heavy things. And I switched over to making light of heavy things. Uh, I would, if I would say if I have a jam, that's my jam for sure. Yeah. You've been compared to somebody like David Sedaris who takes life scenarios and makes them, they're familiar. Sometimes they're the things that are maybe more outlandish that have happened, more upsetting or things that you can sit and talk to your therapist about it. And you can also make light of it and get on a stage or help other people connect with that kind of humor through grief or grief through humor. Yeah, exactly. And one of the real benefits, and this just happened just this weekend when I was working. So somebody came in and I used to be much bigger for very uninteresting reasons. And uh, she was trying to get, she knew that I wasn't going to answer her directly about why I was smaller now, but she was trying to work it organically into conversation. And I was just able to like, like box around it every time. And my coworker (laughs) was like, wow, you're good at that. And I was like, I'm like a lifetime fat person. Like, of course, like I've been fat longer than she's been. That person has been alive. Like, of course I can see that coming a hundred miles away. And we're laughing about it. And she was like, I understand how people can laugh about like the funny side of things that happened like a year ago, but you literally went from, it was like a 30 or 40 second gap between the bad thing happening and you laughing about it. And I was like, that's the gift of comedy. Like that is, everyone laughs about the hard things after a while. Things do get funny, even terribly tragic things. You can remember something funny about it. It's not that it's not tragic. We're human and funny things happen in terrible things. And it doesn't work for everything. I always say when I do presentations about humor, I always have somebody turn to somebody next to them and say, it's okay to laugh at the funny parts. But then we also say it's okay to cry at the sad parts too. It's not a replacement for grief. It's a, I guess, like kind of an adjunct. And for these kind of things, like to speed it up for the lighter in general things, things that might be hard, but not tragic, to speed up that evolution from bad thing to funny thing. That's just like, a, I don't, I don't think anyone has to do that. I don't think it's like a moral imperative. I don't, th- don't think anyone needs to do it. I'm just saying it's a tool that works for me and I feel really grateful for it. Yeah. You even mentioned that you are, you don't remember the bad things sometimes. <laughs> and I feel like there is this sort of, I don't know, with pregnancy or I do endurance triathlon <laughs> and I make a parallel being like doing an Ironman and women who have had babies that say, I forgot the pain and had another one. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like that's how I do an Ironman. Oh, how can I do that again? Or a marathon? How can I do that again and get faster? Wait a minute, 10 minutes ago, I I never wanted to put my foot into a running shoe again. (laughs) So I think there is that kind of parallel, I guess, to some people just have that kind of yeah, I remember the good parts or I can laugh at the hard parts sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. 
I feel like your life has been a series of changes or a series of evolving, I guess, maybe is a better way to put it, because you have done so many things and grown on them, discovered things, had tragedy happen in your life. After 35, what would you say in the last 20 years have been your biggest changes or your key highlights or key lowlights? Definitely losing the two partners who both of whom I lost at age. I was 38 and then 41, I think, when the second person died. No, 42, almost 43. Both those were certainly lowlights, of course, but also highlights in that the people around me really rallied and made it possible for me to get through in a way that I wouldn't have ever anticipated. You know, it was very hard the second time for people to know what to say, but I really appreciate people who thought of anything. Just to have something said. Yeah, that was... So those were the lowlights and highlights in the way that things are, right? But that profoundly changed my life forever, of course. It made me... I think there's parts of it that like softened me, that it made me... I don't know, I, I say a little bit that I audited old age, losing the two partners early. I, it helped so much my relationship with my mom. The same year my partner Heather died, her husband also died. And so I was able to come home and put him on hospice with her and do the paperwork and talk about things. And then when he died, I just sat with her for six days. And she was like, yeah, nobody would have known how to do that. We had somehow thought of sitting with somebody after somebody dies. That was a new idea with us, but I guess not rushing around (laughs) was the whole thing. Like no other religious tradition does that. So that kind of really changed my life. And logistically too, it changed my life. And then I had an exploding knee replacement didn't really explode, but a knee replacement that got infected and had to have five surgeries, including one where they took out the knee replacement and couldn't put it back in for three months. And so you just don't have a knee for three months, which is really unpleasant. That doesn't seem to work, but yeah, (laughs) it did not work at all. So that was really, that was two solid, almost three years of kind of just constant surgeries and pain and IV antibiotics through central line. And I'm so grateful that seems to be completely under control now. And I'm much more mobile than I used to be. And I feel so grateful for that. And so again, low light, high light, people helping out. I really appreciate that. And also learning how to, I've I've been teaching people medical self-advocacy for a long time, but learning how to do that for myself. And I think the thing that doing the moth main stage, which is for the kind of comedy I do, storytelling comedy, that's like the peak, right? That's like the height. I just did, I've done the moth main stage Three times. I'm doing it again, but I just did it in New York, which seems like a pinnacle. And that also feels like it's not a big change, I guess, but it's a big milestone for sure. And then the thing that has just been lovely and up until this year, just like completely lovely is I stumbled into, and I hate it when people say they stumble into good things because I feel like, no, we should work for them and put them on our list of things to do. But sometimes you really do stumble into things. That's the Wisconsin upbringing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really stumbled into this day job where it's not a lot of it was stuff I had never done, but it is exactly right fit for my personality and who I am in the world. And for nine years, I loved going to work every single day. And it worked out perfectly because it was a job at a school. So I could tour on the on the many vacations that we had. And So I feel so, so, so grateful to have that experience of being the very right person at the very right time. Uh, The convent, I just felt, oh, I was the very wrong person. (laughs) Uh, But it's (laughs) nice to have that experience where you feel like, oh, I'm the very right person. It feels fantastic. I feel grateful to have had a job like that for nine years. And it felt like a real gift. 
And we talked about before we were recording, but it's art therapy. So we said about therapy, not just being talk therapy, but the fact that exists for kids in a school in Brooklyn is just one of the coolest things to me. I wish it was something that was more of a thing when I was back in the day, because how wonderful. Yeah, it's amazing that there's all these art, like the program that we run has art therapy and a social worker who also does case management. And we have a free grocery and a clothing closet and we run fun after school stuff. I lead an anime club, which is why I'm always being asked questions about anime, even though I know nothing about it. It's just what one of the kids wanted to do. So I'm like, oh, sure, I guess I do that now. That's what I'm doing Thursdays at lunch. On Tuesday and Thursday, I cook breakfast. I have in my office a Belgian waffle maker that can make two at a time. And I make Belgian waffles for the kids who come in the morning before school so they're not late and they can play video games and stuff. And, you know, it's just kind of an amazing job to have in a lot of ways. Yeah, it definitely sounds like just from everything I've read about you and learned from you today, definitely the right fit. Especially if you're making breakfast, it's also good that you're an early bird. Right, exactly. Yeah, nobody nobody else is going to, uh, yeah, nobody else wants to do the breakfast thing. That is that is mine, my own. And sometimes <laughs> I have to say when the kids come in and I'm like, hey, how you doing? That's 731. And they're like, hi, okay. Take, take it down or not, lady, or whatever you are. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even talked about the fact that you've written seven books. <laughs> I feel like I was like, where to begin with Kelly? Because there are a million <laughs> interesting things about your life. And in addition to books, so many articles, so many things that, you know, around all these different things we've talked about. I watched your, the documentary you were in at Sister Mercy about being a nun. <laughs> so in what is not a particularly long life so far, <laughs> you've done a lot. Talk to me about writing a little bit. I started out really more as a writer than as a performer. It took me a long time to get enough confidence to perform, even though even as a kid, I used to tell jokes to the cows on my way on my way home from the bus, which by the way, not a bad, I've had way worse audiences. <laughs> so I always wanted to be a comedian since I knew it was a thing. I remember my dad let us stay up late to watch Steve Martin, like we'd stay at 9 p.m. to watch Steve Martin's first special from a stadium, which now in retrospect, I was like, oh, that's kind of adult. And I was like, no, his humor was so surreal that kids could watch it and get it. Like an arrow through the head can either be like surreal or it can just be slapstick. So since I knew that a stand-up comedian was a thing, I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. But it really wasn't until when I was in nursing school, I got a, a gig writing a humor column for the local gay paper, one of two local gay papers, ludicrous that in those days, there were two lovely, but ludicrous that there were two gay papers. And so every Friday at 11 a.m., I had a 500 word column due that was supposed to be funny and gay and also deal with the theme of the newspaper for that week because it was all themes. On Thursday at 3 p.m., I'd be calling my friend and being like, do you think of anything funny and gay about the Devon Horse Show? And it had to be very close to 500 words because it was for print. And I did that for two and a half years and two couple things. A, I am so glad that those are not online now because they, some of them were great and they were my first real professional writing and they were written every week, 500 words, something funny and gay about the Devon Horse Show. <laughs> you know, they weren't, they weren't the best. And yeah, I think I hadn't learned to shorten sentences. So they're in some cases unreadable, but they're actually popular. People like them, I think, because there wasn't a lot of queer humor just floating around in the ether at that point. So that was the boot camp of writing. And then when that paper closed, I actually started, I 
had a monthly humor column for a national queer women's magazine. And I did that for a while. So that's how it all led. And then the books, I've sold seven books and I've never had an agent. I think when you look at the finances, the financial rewards of my books, it'll be clear that's the case. Although that's not true. My first book was How to Survive and Maybe Even Love Nursing School, which was published by F.A. Davis, which is an academic publisher. This was their own, their first non-academic book. It was illustrated with cartoons and it was the first of its kind. So for a long time, it was an adopted book in nursing 101 classes. And that was amazing. It made me like, I'd go to a nursing conference at that time and be like a little mini mini celebrity for those 20 minutes. And it was a, a book that I feel like was helpful to people. There has since, we've done three editions of that and newer books have come out. So that is not as frequently adopted, but that was a great experience. The, who gets to write that as their first book? That was amazing. And I really got to write that because I was on a listserv back in the day of student nurses and somebody from F.A. Davis said, we're thinking about doing a book for student nurses. What do you guys think? And I wrote to him and I said, that's a great idea. I think it should be funny and I think I should write it. And they did. And they like paid for develop. You know, I had never written a book. They paid for a developmental editor. I was nine months late. They were so patient, but it was a great first experience. And then the rest of the books, similarly, you know, I pitched myself here or there. So there's How to Survive and Maybe Even Love Nursing School, How to Survive and Love Your Life as a Nurse, and then the Boy's Body Book and the Girl's Body Book. The Boy's Body Book is like in its sixth or seventh edition and it's doing very well, but it was done work for hire. So I don't really see any of that money, even though it's the bestseller in its category on Amazon almost all the time. Oh, that would be so annoying. <laughs> I mean, it'd be not annoying that it was the bestseller, but that you weren't seeing the yeah. rewards of that. Yeah. And they, the last edition, they, I wrote something to include trans kids in it because it's about bodies. And they said they're going to put it in and then took it out last minute. And after that, I was like, okay, I can't work on this anymore. I would like to say too, that anybody's listening, if that book is of interest to you and you want that section, or you want to know more about that section, I know that you have a link on your website that people can read it because it was something that you wanted to include that was taken out. And I think that it's important that people know that. Yeah. Some of the reviews have even been, why is this so gender binary? And I'm like, yes, why indeed? And I put up a huge fight about it, but I, it was not a great contract. I was, I wanted to write that book and I didn't really care what the contract was like. I, I thought that I was the right person to write that book. So it's fine. I signed the contract. I wasn't under duress, but I just didn't have any pull in this situation. So that's why I just put up that part. And people, I even made it the right size so people could print it out and just stick it in. That's what belongs in the book. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. I think it's important that people know that is out there to and yeah. available to read. Yeah. And, and gender is not a binary. Why, I don't even know why we're doing those books like that. But anyway, blah, blah, blah. I could talk about gender not being a binary. Pretty much this could be a whole nother series of podcasts. Yeah, there's plenty to say. And I know that even when I was speaking to you about coming on the podcast, it was, this is a podcast that speaks very much about women changing their lives and careers after 35. And that was a question for you. How do you feel about coming on something like this? Um, yeah. Yeah. I have changed my, the name of my identity as people have, as terminology has evolved. I call myself non, I identify as non-binary, but for me, butch which is often equated with being female, 
assigned female birth and still having a female identity, although not always. To me, that is a non-binary identity, but there's lots of people who are like, no, I'm not binary, I'm female. It's all just about the words that you identify with. But certainly, I was assigned female birth and a lot of people experiencing me as female, so I feel. And ask me whether I am identify as female or something else, it depends on the day. And I think that's very fair. And I think as someone who wants to explore lots of different kind of change and a spectrum of where people are in their identity in general, because mm-hmm. we talk about how people have changed throughout their lives. And if it's something that you identify differently day to day, let's talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Oh, I want to talk about Edinburgh Fringe. That's how we came into contact to begin with, which obviously I've done several podcasts. My regular listeners will know with Edinburgh Fringe performers from last year, and you're taking second helping to the Fringe this year. Yeah, I'm super excited. I have done the Fringe before. I did it on my the summer of my 50th birthday, so I'm really excited. I was there for maybe 10 or 12 days, and I tried to. I was just going to get on everybody's show that I could get on, and I had such a great time. And performing in caves, and there was one building where I was like, "Is this an abandoned building or is this the venue?" Most of the buildings are like that. <laughs> oh, this uh, is a beautiful old falling down Edinburgh <laughs> building. Am I supposed to go in there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was saying that, and I had some piece that I thought was hilarious. So about Edinburgh, it's like from the ancient French meaning, "Why is everything always wet?" Because everything you touch all the summer in Edinburgh is wet and, co- and slightly covered in vomit also. During the month of August, that is true. <laughs> yeah. But I had such a great time. And I know the crowds are down a little bit, but just like the whole idea of just these roving crowds of people, I must see live theater. I must see live theater. And also because I was doing almost all the shows were within were free shows. And so people would go in and try things they wouldn't normally try. And that was really, that was inspirational to me. And also American comedy is very slanted towards the setup punch, setup punch. Mm-hmm. And anytime that I've done comedy outside of the U.S., people have a lot more patience for telling a story, which I really appreciate. And for having a little bit more to say, I feel as well. In general, that's a gross generalization, but a generalization. So I'm super, I had such a great 10 days. I'm performing four or five shows, a show at 11 a.m., a show at 11 p.m. And I had such a great time. Lots of different kinds of shows, and which I hope to do some this summer, but then I'll also have my own show that's at CC Blooms, which is a subject of a Margaret Cho joke where she talks about how that's the gayest thing she's ever heard because CC Blooms is the gay bar in Edinburgh that is named after Bette Midler's character in Beaches. That is pretty gay. Okay, Margaret <laughs> Cho. Uh, <laughs> and so I felt, oh my God, I'm, I have a venue that's a part of a Margaret Cho joke. It just felt very, I don't know, felt very historical. And I feel great is a great combination of having a little bit of a queer venue, but also having a, like a greater crowd, which is something, you know, I started saying that the, I originally started performing just in the queer community. And that has been very good for me. I thought that's where my focus was going to be. And then somewhere in the last decade, some parts of the world and some things have changed and people are a little bit more interested in having hearing queer voices and having queer voices tell queer stories, which is the real difference. So I feel like this is a really good combination of having that great venue and also having access to a wider because the show is called Second Helping. The description is about it's about two dead girlfriends and an exploding knee replacement and disappointing Mother Teresa, which is pretty specific to me, I will say. But it's about the universal difficulty and climb and struggle to learn how to ask for and accept help. Uh-huh. Yeah, which is that is maybe it's not universal, but it's 
There's a lot of folks who struggle with that. It's very close to universal. So you get the, this is unique, but come in for the universal experience. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. And I'm looking forward to the conversations too. For my 55th birthday, which happens right before I get in the fringe, I'm going to do a walk through all five boroughs of New York. And one of the things I want to do is have conversations about learning how to ask for help during that, you know, invite people to walk along with me, both people I know and strangers, I guess, as I walk along, if I have the courage to do that, I'm not sure, to ask about, is it easy for you to ask for help? Is it hard for you to ask for help? When is it easy? What do you do to make it easier to ask people for help? Because one of the things with nursing is there's so much stigma around it. So even if you want to ask for help, like there have to, the conditions have to be right. So anyway, yeah, so I'm super excited about I'm sure ask me the fifth day of the friends if I'm enjoying flyering, but I'm actually excited about flyering because I want to have those conversations about learning how to ask for help. Every time I talk to somebody about this subject, they say something I haven't thought of before, or they have a new slant on it. It's just, there's so much, it has so much to do with who we are as people. So it goes really deep. Yeah, I definitely think that's the case. Whether it's I'm too strong, I'm too, I'm, I identify as being a masculine man, or I've been taught that I can't show emotion, which I know you talk a lot about again with your upbringing and they're just asking for help. I don't know. I'm like a micromanager. So for me, it's if I ask for help, are they going to do it the way that I want to do it? Whether it's for my emotional well-being or for work or whatever, you can help me, but I don't really like that kind of therapy. So it's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> and if somebody is doing something for you, that's one of the things when I talk about do caregiving, like family caregiving, the idea that just a spouse or just the person in your immediate family can take care of you when you're sick, especially in extended sickness, that's like killing people. You know, we are meant to take care of each other as in groups, I feel. And, but one of the things I would say when we're doing caregiving workshops is if you ask somebody to do something for you, they will not do it the way you will. They might try, but they're not going to do it exactly the way. And then there's, I think you're realistic about that expectation and that there's an equity thing really there in like, especially with, in terms of like mutual aid and disability justice. Like, yes, people are trying to do it the way that is you understand it as best for you, but sometimes they fail. So. But then there's also something so wonderful that people want to care for you, no matter how they do it. And I think that's the thing that sometimes when we ask for help or don't ask for help, it's because there is something so vulnerable about yeah. are people willing? You think, oh, they're not doing it the right way. But really, to be cared for is really hard. Yeah, it takes a certain kind of vulnerability and it takes a certain kind of courage, really. And one of the things is that it gives other people, if you think about how much you like doing a favor, especially a favor you can easily do and is just something you have easy access to. And because of your person, I think of how much joy that gives you when you are able to do it for someone else. And so by not asking for help or not even allowing help, you're actually taking that joy away from somebody else. Yeah. yeah. Now, over a long period of time and certainly in chronic illness, which is, that's a whole nother conversation. Generally, people really do want to help. Yeah most things, altruistic things come with their own reward. And I think, yeah, when you do it, it makes you feel good. So uh -huh. you have to remember that as somebody who's asking for help, you're going to also bring joy <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, to someone else. Yeah. So last question, do you have a quote for me today? Yeah. So I actually have, even though we're working in an audio medium, but I'll show it to you. I have a, a tattoo, which is a diagram sentence 
which is a way of teaching grammar that they don't teach anymore, but even though I think it's okay. All right. And that is a quote from Marielle. Now I actually looked up on Wikipedia how to say her last name. Rue Keister? Rue Keister, I think. Anyway, who I, when I was looking up how to pronounce her name, I found out like she's of extremely like a progressive poet, a radical. She died in 1980, but I also found out she was bisexual when I was looking up how to pronounce her name. I didn't remember how to pronounce her name, but I did remember she was bisexual. So I guess we all have our priorities. (laughs) Anyway, the quote says, the universe is made of stories, not of atoms. And so I had that. In fact, once we, I was at the, an amusement park with the teenagers that I work with. And one of the kids asked me to please pull down the sleeve of my hoodie so that the other young people at the amusement park would not see that they were with an adult who had a diagram sentence on their arm. They were very <laughs> embarrassed by my tattoo. And I do have to say, I love that quote. And I believe if you understand the story, you understand it all. And if you understand all this in terms of a story, It just gives it so much more meaning, even if you don't have an exterior thing giving it meaning. But I feel like having something that says the universe is made of stories, not of atoms, in our current anti-science age that we're going through, I want to have a little asterisk that says, and also, I believe in atoms too. (laughs) (laughs) But as someone who is a storyteller, I produce plays and podcasts, and it's all about getting these stories out. And I think what a wonderful quote. But yes, I like the asterisk as well, because there are so many people now that'd be like, here's a story for you. And it's not true, but I'm going to make everyone believe it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot because I think if I can find it, I have, I have a quote also that you have on your, oh no, I can't find it. It's the one about laughing and I love it so much. It's on your website. And it's your quote that I wanted to share. Is it the one about laughter, a revolutionary gesture? Yes. Is that um, yours? Yeah, that is, that's, I think that's just something I wrote on my website, but laughter is a revolutionary gesture and laughing together is the most revolutionary gesture of all. I think that's the way it goes. Don't quote me on quoting myself. <laughs> such a good quote. Between that and the stories, I'm inspired for my day. So thank you so much, Kelly, for joining me. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I had a fantastic experience. And thanks for letting me do a morning, early morning interview. Is there anything else you'd like to tell listeners? Uh, people can find me on all the socials at Kelly with an I, D-U-N-H-A-M, TikTok, Instagram, not Blue Sky now. I'm going to give up Twitter, but yeah, all the socials. I put something a little different on every place. So also YouTube, I have some animations, some stop motion animations done with Lego of some of my comedy. So if you're into stop motion or Lego, that, that that's the place to find me. Because obviously you have plenty of time in the <laughs> 10 million other things you're doing. I feel like it's very obvious that was quarantine, right? Nobody says, oh, I learned stop motion animation <laughs> in, in the quarantine is understood in parentheses. <laughs> thank you again. And good luck with everything. We will see you out on the circuit. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for the Second Chapter newsletter. The Second Chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told, and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. You can find us at thesecondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.